Every time I get in the back of an Uber or Lyft, I'm reminded of the rule every child is required to follow. Don't ever get in the car with a stranger. It's weird to think how commonplace riding with strangers is now. Your phone can summon a stranger in two minutes or less and requires that you enter said stranger's car within four minutes, otherwise they abandon you. We're now desperate to get in strangers' cars. I'm Danielle, and you're listening to This Is Not The Prologue, meaningful thoughts that don't matter. I'm still getting used to conversing with drivers. Sometimes I'm feeling chatty. Other times I hope to spend these precious moments of free time by comparing myself to people on Instagram, mentally replaying how I should have responded to that conversation two weeks ago and other unhealthy behaviors. Sometimes it's nice to simply stare out the window and pretend I'm a dignitary or Hollywood starlet whose chauffeur is transporting me somewhere spectacular. I've always loved the idea of a chauffeur, someone who can take me from point A to point B with door-to-door efficiency. I don't mind driving, but one of my many irrational fears is parking. Not so much the direct act of parking a car, but the parking situation. Is this going to be a garage, a parallel, One of those one-way lots where if there's not a spot, I'll be forced to put the car in reverse and back out the way I came? Will this be a situation where I'll need to take my parking garage ticket with me and pay ahead of time? Or will I interact with a parking attendant upon exiting? Should I leave extra time to get somewhere as I'll likely end up parking far away from where I need to go to avoid the crippling anxiety of someone watching me attempt to parallel park? (sighs) I think I speak for most rideshare passengers that the hour between 6 and 7 a.m. is not a time for conversational pleasantries such as traffic conditions, the upcoming week's weather, or what you and your stepdaughter are cooking for dinner tonight, Craig in your brown Mitsubishi. One memorable early morning ride began with my driver, Charles, letting me know that I'm welcome to sit up front. No, thank you, sir. I'll risk stranger danger from the back seat if you don't mind. A few minutes into the ride, Charles looks in his rearview mirror, smiles wide, and asks, so what do you do for a living? This is such a strange question. First, your phrasing's all off, old man. We've evolved to... So what do you do? Which is also not something I'm interested in discussing as we've established the conversational moratorium during the wee morning hours. What I do for a living is not explicitly tied to my place of work. Yes, I understand that living is tied to being financially independent, but the question struck me because my living involves so many other things like my family and my dog and drinking mimosas outside. This obsession we have with what someone does is a perplexing phenomenon. They want to ask and they want you to provide a succinct, comprehensible answer so we can both check the social politeness box we're prescribed to. So in the spirit of minding social cues, I answer Charles's question, regurgitating the elevator pitch that simplifies my identity in 10 seconds or less. 
Upon further reflection, a more sophisticated answer may have sounded like, well, Charles, what I do for a living has many facets, all of which I don't want to discuss with you because A, it's painfully early, B, the answer is complex, and C, you are a complete stranger. How about this rule? Never take candy from a stranger. Here I am, 32 years old, sitting in a car with someone I don't know, eating candy this unknown person has kindly provided. Rideshare drivers operate in a competitive environment and must step up their game to stand out from the crowd. One of my all-time favorite rides was with a middle-aged woman who offered fresh-baked cookies, Japanese fruit chews, and heated seats. You betcha I gave Carol five stars. Carol set the bar so high that now any time I get in a car with no offerings, I feel cheated. Okay, Brian, I guess I'll sit back here with no sweet treats. I guess. What the heck were we doing before Uber and Lyft? I'll answer that for you. Driving drunk. A lot. And sure, there were a few times with DDs, but there were a lot of other times where the general population was like, Yeah, I could totally drive. Since ride-sharing with strangers, we can also ride-share with acquaintances a lot less. No, colleague I only talk to when I need a ride to the airport, I won't be needing your services anymore. I can travel in style now, in a minivan, with a karaoke machine. Unless you have XL money, riding with three other people is interesting, because one member of the group will have to ride shotgun and maintain conversation with the driver to offer directional advice, to feign interest in their musical choices, to discuss what one does for a living, it's far from the best seat in the house. What can work is when the brave group member in the front seat can get the driver and the rest of the car aligned in the same conversation. Much less awkward. Much more streamlined. Like one ride with my family, when I volunteered for the front seat, after learning that our approaching driver was named Kathy, and described herself as grandmotherly in her bio. Totally harmless. Five minutes into the ride, we confirm that Kathy is indeed grandmotherly and easy to talk to. Quite surprisingly, Kathy listens to rap music with a soft spot for Kendrick Lamar. Unprompted, Kathy turns on her CD player and plays her favorite song. A cover of I'm in Love with a Porn Star by her son, an aspiring rapper. We ended the ride with big smiles and a free CD. These are what Lyft dreams are made of. I checked my recent Lyft ride history, and I legitimately don't remember a single one of these drivers. That's a little scary. Either I have a terrible memory, or what's more likely, we don't really see these people's faces aside from their tiny picture at the initial request. Show me a photo series of the back of their heads, and it'll all come back. Remember cabs? Yeah, me neither. I do recall both a pedicab and golf cart cab experience where I was responsible for keeping a drunk person from falling out. And the golf cart cab turned out to be just some random guy at a bar with a golf cart who offered us a ride home. Last Valentine's Day, my husband Scott and I saw a ballet production of Dracula. We thought, how romantic. We'll celebrate this day of love with dancing and neck biting, and then after that, go to Dracula. This production took place at the Keller Auditorium in Portland, Oregon. And yeah, I'm calling them out by name because I have major beef with this establishment. 
Let me explain. A few Christmases ago, Scott and I saw the Nutcracker at the Keller, and we thought it would be a complete knee slapper to buy the mixed snack nuts they were selling in the lobby during intermission. Because nuts at the Nutcracker, get it? (laughs) What's completely unforgivable is that, yes, you may buy the Keller's overpriced nuts. However, you can't eat the nuts at your overpriced seat. The most annoying part of this entire nut controversy is they don't tell you ahead of time. They wait for you to awkwardly scooch past the people in your row. Excuse me, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Sit down. Decide on which nut looks most tempting. Oh, baby, come here, you little cashew. To waltz their little usher butts over to tell you that you can't eat the nuts inside the theater. Sir, you and your nuts need to leave. Ma'am, we have a very specific nut policy. Meanwhile, we've got jabronis and dirty tennis shoes and ripped jeans sauntering by without a second glance. Back to the neck biting. This specific production of Dracula was one of the worst live performances I've ever seen. The music, boring. The plot, boring. And there were two intermissions, meaning what feels like moments after you've settled in They're raising the lights and peer-pressuring nut purchases. The bar did offer quite the deal, where attendees could pay for drinks ahead of time prior to the show starting and then pick them up near the bar during intermission without having to wait in line. Genius. After learning we would be enduring not one, but two intermissions, Scott and I smartly decided we should pre-order drinks for both breaks. The bartender taking our order looked at us like we should skip the show entirely and book a one-way ticket to rehab. Two drinks? Each? She questioned. Yeah, lady. I'm not going to feel bad about engaging in the beverage program your venue has so graciously provided. And trust me, we needed every ounce of that alcohol because the neck biting was insufferable. After the show, we called a lift. As they do, the driver asks what we're up to this evening. And as they picked us up from a performing arts center, there's a fairly big conversational elephant in the car to address what we just saw. As I'd had one too many of the specialty cocktails aptly named Dracula's Kiss, which we're not telling Snooty Bartender about, I launched into my complete distaste for the show. I didn't leave out a single detail, as one does when you're drunk, confident, and convinced a complete stranger is invested in your life. Now, I don't need you to laugh at my jokes or applaud my storytelling, but what I really don't need, yes, you Lyft driver, is to disagree with my assessment of something you've never seen. Oh, it couldn't be that bad, she started. Oh, yes, it was, Scott and I jinxed. Well, I have a hard time believing it's as bad as you say. This. At this point in the ride, I've decided I have no interest in continuing the conversation or sharing what I do for a living. What has become abundantly clear is that this driver, with no candy and no snacks, is most certainly a member of the underground anti-nut club of Theaters USA. You really can't trust anyone these days. Thank you for listening to This Is Not The Prologue. You are here and now you have other things to do. Take care out there.